Well, we're teaching through First and Second Timothy, and I intend to go to Titus after this. But we want to pick up in chapter 4. Now remember, we've reviewed this every week. Timothy was the Apostle Paul's dear son in the faith, his premier son. And that was by his desire, not by Paul's necessarily. It is possible to endear yourselves to people by praying for them, by helping them, by being a blessing to them. There is some element of calling. You might be called to somebody. But at the same time, even if you're called, it doesn't mean you answer the calling. And I'm just thinking now, when the Lord called me and my wife to submit to Dr. Barclay 16 years ago, over 16 years ago, that took a process. And even though I was called to Dr. Barclay, I had no heart for him. If you're visiting and don't know my story, our founding pastor of this church died, and his widow informed me four months before my wife and I took over the church that we were going to take over the church. So nobody else knew it. Just her, my wife and I, and the angels and God. That's the only people that knew it. And in that season, I began to pray. And I said, Lord, if I'm going to really take over this church, well, Pastor Vaughn's dead. I've always said you need a pastor. And I don't have a pastor, so I'm going to have to have a pastor because I don't know what I'm doing. Who, who is that to be? Lord, who would you assign me to? Who would you call me to? And I think this is important, especially in light of these two epistles, it's important to know you are called to somebody in this kingdom. You're called to a local church, which means you're also called to whoever that shepherd is. Like David had his mighty men, and Gideon had his 300, and Elisha had his Elijah, and Gehazi had his Elisha. And Paul had his Timothys and his Tukikas, or Tychicus as we pronounce it, and his Tituses and his Epaphrodites. Uh, you're called to somebody, but it doesn't mean you're ever going to make the most out of that connection. And it really isn't fortunate for people to be called to help someone build the kingdom and get nothing out of it. And what that tells me is that if you're called to somebody to help them preach the gospel, then you're not just helping them. They have graces that will help you. And if you fail to receive of those graces, then your life becomes sub-excellent. It becomes sub-glorious. Um, sub if I'm if I was called to be under Pastor Vaughn, then I was also called to get everything God ordained out of him, not just to help him, but also to receive things from him. And then I was connected to Pastor Darren and then Pastor Trey and then a Pastor Tim in Indy and then back to Pastor Vaughn. Then Pastor Vaughn died and then God assigned me to Dr. Barclay. And I can say with full confidence that in every one of those men, I believe I got everything God wanted me to get from those men and their ministries. Now, it wasn't just a selfish one-way road. But I also helped them. I built their ministries for them. I did door-to-door -door evangelism for them. I tithed to them. I served. I prayed. I was a useful cog in their machine. And yet being part of the machine gave my life more purpose. I really do. I hurt for Christians who are just a number on a middle of a section in a, in a church. And their pastor doesn't know their name. The pastor doesn't know their sufferings. And they don't really contribute much. What a, that's not even a kingdom existence. That's an American experience. So here with Timothy, Timothy's called. And he actually makes something out of that calling. Going back to me and Dr. Barclay. When God called me to Dr. Barclay, I was smart enough to recognize my heart, number one, didn't like him. And my heart, number two, didn't know him personally. I was familiar with his ministry and had done two years of SMTI, Dr. Barclay's Video Bible School. 
And I had been in numerous services with him and read a lot of his books, almost all of them at that point. But I didn't know him personally, and I didn't like him for sure. I, I didn't like him still, but I just wasn't hostile towards him or against him. So when the Lord said, your pastor is to be Dr. Mark T. Barclay, I said in my heart, of course, it has to be him because I don't like him. But I began to pray for him. And, and that really picked up even more momentum once we were set in as pastors and I realized if he's going to be my pastor and my mentor, I've got to make something happen. But I also prayed, and I said, Lord, if, if he's to be my pastor, it's not enough to shake hands with him once a week or once a year. I've got to be close to him. I, I, I don't want to just be a peripheral son in the faith. I want to know him. I want to be close to him. I want to have favor with him. And so we prayed ourselves in that position, and that was 2007, and uh, within a very few short years, I was very close to Dr. Barclay and flew on his jet and uh, preached for him once on a Thursday night and then have done other services there, offerings and special things there at Living Word. Um, and really now he and Miss Vicki are like another set of grandparents to our kids. And Miss Vicki absolutely loves our kids. My point is, just because you're called to somebody doesn't mean you make anything of it. And I, I believe there's a whole great swath of believers out there that have been called to some man or woman of God out there, and they've never capitalized on that assignment. One thing is for sure, Timothy did not fail that assignment. If he was called to Paul, he proved that he was called to Paul. And he actually has two epistles to himself because he was that dear to Paul. And these epistles show us behind the scenes of what pastoring is like and what kind of encouragement is often necessary and how the, the higher ups in ministry have to deal with the day-to-day -day affairs of the local church. Paul is an apostle. He establishes churches, but he didn't really pastor them. He would ordain pastors over them. Uh, Timothy being the pastor here over Ephesus, Titus in the second pastoral epistle, really the third, he was the pastor over the island of Crete, and his job was also to ordain elders in all the churches there. So we've been looking at some things behind the scenes of the pastoral ministry through the eyes of the young, intimidable, fearful, yet stalwart Timothy. He, he needs encouragement, but he just doesn't quit. And like one person said, if you got to do it, then just do it afraid, but don't let fear stop you. So we move into chapter 4. And this one picks up a lot of momentum. And this one really, more than probably any other chapter so far, shows us what the pastor's job description is. And I'm going to choose to read it out of the Amplified because it does bring so much more to it. And so let me just let me read chapter 4, the first couple verses out of the Amplified. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, now that isn't, hey, I have a suggestion. That isn't a, hey, can I make a recommendation? When Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his coming and his kingdom. I and mean, this, is, this is one of the most heavy-duty charges Paul ever gives in all of his epistles. I command you, I charge you, I commission you in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of God, who was the judge of the quick and the dead. That's a hard duty. That's, a, that's, that's like a, that's an ordination. 
That's a commissioning of a military officer. It's no, hey, buddy, can I make a suggestion? Hey, dear son, can I, can I, can I share something with you? No. And I think one of the reasons we don't see that much charging going forth by Paul is in all of his writings. In fact, I'm going to check real quick and see how many times he uses the word charge. It's probably because not that many people were submitted enough to receive those kind of commandments. So I'm scrolling through real quick. Thessalonians, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. So here's a charge. Read this letter. Okay, that's not a very difficult task. Then we come to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. This charge I commit thee, 1 Timothy 5. These things give in charge, 1 Timothy 5. I charge thee before God, 1 Timothy 6. I give thee charge, 1 Timothy 6. Charge them that are rich in the world, 2 Timothy 4. I charge thee therefore before God. And then later again, he says, I don't want things to be laid to their charge. You see that Timothy is the one person he charges more than anybody else because he had nobody so deeply committed. I don't like for people to beat around the bush with me, and I like to be submitted and open enough that somebody can just look me straight in the face and say, do this and don't do that. But the only way you and I get there is by humility and submission, not unless you just have an absolute jerk as a boss or a pastor or a father who doesn't care and, and just steamrolls everything in life. But most people don't have that. Let's make sure we can be like this, where we can be charged and we can be shot straight and not have to do this weird emotional dance because we don't want to hurt each other's feelings and step on each other's toes. It's exhausting, especially in a marriage where you have to tiptoe around each other. That's not much openness. That's exhausting. I'm thankful my marriage is not perfect, but one of the things I am thankful for is my wife will come and bring an outfit. And she'll say, do you, do you, how does this look? Do you like it? And I'll say, no, I don't like it. Can I wear it? Sure. I don't like it though. Or she'll say, what about this? Honey, that looks awesome. You look really good in that. Or she'll send me pictures when she goes shopping. Do you like this outfit? Not at all. Don't wear that, please. And we don't have to tiptoe. Or she'll make food. Is it good? Horrible. Pass the ranch. Do we have it intravenously? Can I just kind of have like a conveyor belt of ranch across my tongue while we swallow this, whatever this is you've made? And we don't have to tiptoe around that. Other folks, they're a lot more needy, and you just can't be honest. And it's exhausting when you can't be honest. And then at the same time, why should I let your emotions cause me to be dishonest? We shouldn't both be in sin. So grow up. I charge thee in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to be, excuse me, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his coming and his kingdom. Here's the charge to the pastor. Here's the charge to uh, Timothy, the, the bishop over Ephesus. Herald and preach the word. Don't put a roller coaster in your sanctuary. Don't do a Barbie theme. Don't do a Mario theme. Don't crucify Tony Stark or Iron Man or Woody. What's the biblical charge? Herald, like the angels did. I'm wondering if the angels felt like they needed to proclaim the birth of Christ with entertainment. They put on a top hat and a cane and changed the lyrics to... Hello, my darling. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Did they, did they do that or did they just show up and say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men? I'm ashamed of the American church and may God judge it and thoroughly purge it 
so that it can come back to its former glory and beauty and splendor. Herald and preach the word. Keep your sense of urgency. Stand by and be at hand and ready. Whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable. So as ministers, we are always ready to preach the gospel if the Lord says, go. Whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether it is welcome or unwelcome, you as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong. Ugh. That's not seeker-friendlyism. It is biblical. Your job as a preacher of the word. Now, if you're a preacher of something else, I guess you can blow smoke up people's tailpipes and tell them how to have every day of Friday. But if you're going to obey the apostolic mandate to a pastor, then you've got to tell people and show people in what way their lives are wrong. Because that's what the word does. We looked at that at the end of chapter three, that the, the, the doctrines of Christ, the scriptures are given by inspiration. They're profitable for instruction, for reproof, for conviction of sin, for correction of error and discipline and obedience and for training in righteousness and holy living and conformity to God's will and thought, purpose and action. So the way we bypass that in the modern era is we cherry pick the feel good scriptures and we don't talk about the owie scriptures. <laughs> we don't. We don't talk about uh, the things that are grievous. One of the passages in the Old Testament, I believe it's Jeremiah, God says you'll repent and you'll look at your sin and you'll get rid of your sin as if it were a used menstruous cloth. That's disgusting, but that's the word of God. That you'll see your sin and your shame as a used menstruous cloth and that's how you'll treat it. But in order for people to see their sin and their shame, that way you have to teach them that this is what sin is and this is what shame is. It is as disgusting and vile and worthy of removal as if it were a used menstruous cloth. Or you can just say, God wants to be good to you and every day a Tuesday and how to have your best day ever and, and just lie. And smile at them while you lie to them. That's why I like these mandates. I like to know my job description. Let's keep reading. And you're to convince them, rebuking and correcting, warning and urging and encouraging them, being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. So patience is the attitude with which we as pastors teach. And our teaching does several things. Teaching convinces or convicts. It's the same word. Teaching can rebuke. Teaching can correct. Teaching can warn. Teaching can urge. Teaching can encourage. If you go to a church and the teaching never does any of that, well, you might just be getting good knowledge, but if the knowledge isn't producing a conviction, if it isn't correcting and adjusting something, if it isn't bringing a word of warning from time to time and urging or encouraging you, then it may be time to reevaluate the trough you're eating at because you may just be slopped like a hog and God wants us to be fed at his table. Now, why is this mandate so critical? Why does Paul give this severe charge to young Timothy, even though he's pastoring a great church, as we've proven and said, the Ephesians church was Paul's most mature church, at least at the time of his epistle writing, because there aren't any rebukes in there. It's all doctrine. Why do we have to be it? Even with this good church, why does 
Timothy keep the press on. In basketball, they call it the forward press. Why do you keep this pressure on them? Why, why in time of peace, like right now in U.S. history, why do our military keep running training drills? Why do our Navy SEALs keep training? Because there's a time coming when you're going to need to be instant in season and out. Why tell people what way their lives are wrong constantly? Why convince? Why rebuke? Why correct? Why warn? Why urge? Why encourage? Constantly being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. Why? Well, verse 3 gives us the why. For the time is coming when people will not tolerate or endure sound and wholesome instruction. Well, you and I know the time is not coming. It's here. When the American people have been taught for 247 years that they can vote, and congregation members vote with their rump. You know, back when we overthrew the Taliban under George Bush Jr., they would vote and they'd use their thumbprint. And if you remember the pictures, all, everybody, even the women, would come out of the polls with purple thumbs to prove they had voted, and they used that permanent dye so there couldn't be any voter fraud. Well, apparently, our politicians believe in voter fraud because we just fake everything anymore. And it's, it's a true statement that our nation is becoming a banana republic, which is not just a clothier with trendy clothes for really skinny people, but it is when the government's corrupt and they, they increase corruption to maintain their power. When America was convinced we could vote, the American church doesn't vote with their thumbs. They vote with their butt. And they vote with bums in the chairs. And if the pastor has some kind of formula and it's packing the house, that informs the carnal pastor that what he's doing is God. If he preaches and does something and people begin to leave, unless he's just very mature and spiritual, and unfortunately not a lot are anymore, he's going to adjust what he's doing to keep people from leaving. We have come to the time where people no longer endure and tolerate sound doctrine. They're now leaving churches that confront them and they're going to easier churches. And please keep in mind, there will always be an easier church. And your job is not to go around looking for the easier church. One of my proverbs that I made up, being a geologist and having some experience with hydrology, I like to say, Lukewarm Christians are like water. They'll take the easiest route to collect in the lowliest of places. And that is how the body of Christ is matriculating down into cesspools. <laughs> They'll not endure or tolerate sound and wholesome instruction, but having itching ears for something pleasing and gratifying, they will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold. They choose a pastor that will foster the error they hold. That is the seeker-friendly movement, the feel-good movement, the entertainment movement. The, uh, you know, the thing that bugs me right now is a lot of these churches like, like to brag about all the community do-goodism they do. And well, we bought this family a car. That's great. Are they a widow indeed, according to 1 Timothy? If they're not a widow indeed, you should really reconsider how you're spending God's money. Oh, you know, well, we built this house, so that's great. Did God give you permission to? Is that all we're bragging about? Building houses, buying cars, and picking up litter? 
Are we talking about how many folks got saved? Do you demonstrate the power of God at the altar? Or are you afraid that's going to run off the carnal reprobates, those that are fornicating, doing drugs, and looking at porn? I don't even know what we're doing half the time in the American church anymore. Itching ears. Now, when you read this passage here, this is a famous verse, having itching ears. They will heap to them, after their own lust, they'll heap to themselves teachers. Now, this reminds me of Aaron, Moses' brother. And I believe it may be the inspiration for Paul here, Paul being a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee. He knew the law very well. And coming out of the Exodus or into the Exodus out of Egypt, Israel had to be patient while Moses went up to the mountain to seek God. And as they grew impatient, the ill-prepared, immature minister that was Aaron, rather than waiting and doing what God said, decided to give the people what they wanted. And he said, I know, I'll make us an idol. I will give us the God we're looking for. And the people were excited. Now, not the entirety of the nation of Israel, because the Bible tells us it was, I believe, about 17,000 that were killed for the sin of the golden calf. But that's a big, that's a megachurch. Huh. You can double check me. It wasn't 100,000 people. I want to say, it makes me want to go back there and look in Exodus now. It makes me want to wonder how many folks, there we go. No, it says there fell about that day about 3,000 men. So I was off, not 17,000. So if 3,000 men were killed for the sin of the golden calf, 3,000 people, then that may have been about the only number that were really participating in it, even though their sin perverted the whole of the nation. That's Exodus 32, verse 28. But, you know, 3,000 is a good megachurch, so let's brag about 3,000 members because, you know, if you got 3,000 people, they couldn't possibly be worshiping a false god. So Aaron, he says, I, I got it. I'm going to make us a new god, but I need some money. And the Bible says, and he took their earrings. Well, to take earrings, you have to scratch some ears. And with those scratched ears, they willingly gave of money for an offering to make a new god because when they were done with this golden calf... Aaron, the immature, ill-prepared minister, because he's not the Levitical priest yet, because he hasn't been anointed yet. He's just Moses' helper. He says, behold, Jehovah, behold, Yahweh. That is, this is God. We would say it this way, this is Jesus, but obviously it's not. But if everybody pretends that it's Jesus, then we're all in this deception together. And if you ask folks, well, who do you serve? I serve Jesus. Oh, really? Which Jesus? The one of the Bible or the one of the seeker-friendly movement? Which Jehovah? The one that burns the mountain or the one that came out of the fire looking like a golden calf? Because it's the same name but two different gods. And we're living in that day now where we have a lot of churchgoers serving Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. We should keep reading because this is coming out too slow. They will turn aside from hearing the truth and wander off into myths and man-made fictions. And there's much to be said. Every culture produces their own myths and man-made fictions. As for you, so notice Paul saying it's an us and a them. And he's saying this will happen in the church. Timothy, Take the time that you've got to preach the word, correct people, because the time is coming and it's going to be an us and a them. It's going to be the faithful and the unfaithful, the committed and the departed. 
How do we stay committed? Well, as he says, verse 5, Amplified Bible, be calm and cool and steady and accept and suffer unflinchingly every hardship. You know, when Obama started pushing the whole gay marriage agenda, now he may have been your favorite president, but he mocked our God. And any man that mocks my God is my enemy. When he started pushing the whole gay marriage thing, I watched Christians on social media buckle under middle school peer pressure and begin to praise gay marriage to where the whole of the nation swung a little bit more to the left where the Democrats live, mocking our God and killing our babies. And they started posting gay flags on their Facebook page. That was the only social media that really existed back then. All because of middle school peer pressure. And this verse says, suffer unflinchingly every hardship. We had Christians in America who couldn't even suffer Facebook persecution. They couldn't even stand the thought of being unfriended or unfollowed. So they capitulated, they folded. And we're watching the same thing now with this whole uh, uh, pronoun. (laughs) This whole, tell me your pronouns. All right, I stand to pee. I stand for the flag and I stand to pee. Because that's how God made me. So my pronouns are stand to pee. Stand to pee. Feel pretty good about it. Because that's the way God made me to be. Write, it, write a song about it. It'll all rhyme. <laughs> Christians are going to have to be prepared to suffer unflinchingly every hardship. And then he goes on and takes it. Not just the local church. Now do the work of an evangelist. Fully perform all the duties of your ministry. Or as the King James says, make full proof of your ministry. One of the ways we can tell people are called is they also have a heart for the lost. We we don't just brag about ministry callings. We go win people to Jesus because even if we're not called to be a full-time evangelist, even a prophet wants to win somebody. Even a teacher wants to win somebody. Apostles certainly want to win people because if you're not winning people, what saints do you have to perfect as a ministry gift? Verse 6, for I am ready, excuse me, I am already about to be sacrificed. My life is about to be poured out as a drink offering. The time of my spirit's release from the body is at hand, and I will soon go free. Now this tells us Paul can, he can perceive that he has an appointment with martyrdom. I personally believe, this is my personal doctrine, I studied this out thoroughly, 12, 13 years ago when the spirit of death came to my life and began to talk to me and it lied to me and said I would die a martyr in seven years. That was 2010. I was living in the apartment off of Stephen Street then. That spirit came into my bedroom, passed itself off as the Holy Spirit and told me I would die a martyr in seven years and I would never see my children grow old. That's a hard lie from the enemy to rebuke when martyrdom is a biblical experience. But that, the turmoil of that demonic lie grieved me, vexed me, oppressed me, depressed me, suppressed me, press-pressed me, did everything but French-press me, because that's some good coffee, until I started digging deep into the Bible. So let me teach you really quick about martyrdom, because it's real big, it's real popular right now, the uh, Voice of the Martyrs magazine, and I don't disparage anybody that dies for their faith. But according to Scripture... The scriptural precedent, all these men died as martyrs 
when they had finished their race and they died in old age and they had no dependents that we can tell. And they had a choice. A lot of folks who die today don't, aren't given a choice. And I, I'm not here to belittle anybody that the Muslims in Nigeria are killing because that is martyrdom. They're being shot and murdered and hacked to, get, to death with machetes for their faith. Our, our government, to some degree, is complicit in the Christian genocide in Nigeria, the northern territories. I have a pretty good ministry buddy who's actually... He's doing stuff to help them. I probably shouldn't even say or stream because I'm not sure how legal it is, but he's doing stuff. But as he wants to help Christians defend themselves against radical Muslim herdsmen who their government support, and apparently, to some degree, the U.S. government is complicit in aiding anyway. Martyrdom is a calling you're going to know it's going to, if you're called to it, you're going to know it in advance and you're going to seek it eagerly. Paul says that here. I am ready to be poured out. The time of my release is at hand. You can hear the excitement. Uh, we have a very famous story of Polycarp in the epistle of Polycarp. It's not in the Bible. Polycarp was one of John the Revelator's epistles, or, uh, disciples. So he has a letter he wrote. It's not scripture, but it is a historical document. And he records how God spoke to him and he was in his 90s. I think he was 98, as history records. And the Lord spoke to him in prayer and said, you're to die a martyr's death. Through the persecution of the Catholics against the Protestants, they burned so many at the stake for possessing Bibles, if you can believe that. They wanted to know if there was a martyr's grace. And they said, one of the stories is, if there's a martyr's grace, then when the fires burn, and your hands are free, lift your hands in worship, and we'll know there's a grace for martyrdom. And as the stories go from the uh, Protestant persecution by the Catholics in that dark era, they would burn Christians, Protestants, at the stake for being anti-Catholic or really just pro-Protestant. And as the fires grew to where they burned the bands or the ropes off their hands, they would lift their hands and worship and sing psalms. And one story I read says they would sing until the flames got too loud. You couldn't hear them singing anymore, but they never shrieked in terror. And that was a sign to those who were to be martyred next that there's a grace and you won't feel a thing. I, I maybe should take a, a lesson, a service sometime and teach everything I learned about martyrdom in the nine months I was suffering the oppression of the threat from the devil that I would die a martyr when the Lord kept telling me, you will be gathered to the grave in a ripe old age. And I would talk to my pastor and he'd say, nope, not your calling, son. Early church, yes, us, no. Our job's to climax the ages. So Paul was ready and he was old and he had no dependents. Because why would God call you to a martyr at 35 and leave a wife and babies? There is a famous martyr I won't name because it'll offend some of you. He was only martyred because he disobeyed his leadership. He was told not to go visit those native people. And he told his leadership or insinuated, you don't know what you're talking about and I'm not going to listen to you. And in his rebellion as a 20-something, he went anyway and was killed and left his wife a widow in her 20s. To me, that's not praiseworthy. That's rebellion. Now, maybe some good can come of it later, but let's emphasize the first part of the story. If you submit... You'll live. Rebel, you could die. <laughs> Verse 7, I have fought the good, worthy, honorable, and noble fight. I have finished the race. This race 
is a fight. The only way you and I will finish our race is if we fight the good fight. We fight the good fight. We don't fight each other. Our battle's not with flesh and blood. But this also is a reminder to Timothy, this Christian walk is a battle. It's not the love boat. It's a battleship. This isn't a nursery. It's an arena. We have to be prepared to endure hardness. We have to be prepared to suck it up. If we can't handle correction from people that love us, if we can't handle correction from someone who cuts our paycheck, that's your boss, how in the world are we going to handle persecution from people that hate us? It's really become a weak society, and it shouldn't be in you or I as believers. I've kept and firmly held the faith because, remember, for the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at the threat throughout First and Second Timothy of losing faith, of falling away, of apostatizing, of departing. Remember, all of Asia Minor had turned against Paul. Hymenius, Philetus, Alexander, these had all turned against Paul. And Paul was worried Timothy might turn as well. And Paul says, listen, I have kept the faith. Well, why would he say that if it wasn't a questionable deal? Now, listen, I, I, every once in a while, I get a little punchy with Calvinists. And nowadays you have Neo-Calvinism, five-point Calvinism. And they talk about the P in TULIP. TULIP is their acronym, T-U-L-I-P. Uh, and if, if they're a five-point TULIP Calvinist, then I'm probably a chrysanthemum Armenian because I have a lot more points as to what I believe. <laughs> and I wish I knew what. You know what I am? I'm not a tulip. I'm a Pasutasuga Menzenzii. That's what I am. I'm a Pasutasuga Menzenzii Armenian. That is a Douglas fir tree. Your little tulip, it can drop its petals. So perseverance, just, you know, all joking aside, their, their P stands for perseverance of the saints, which means they're never going to deny the faith. Well, if you can't deny the faith, why would Paul say, I've kept the faith? Why would he make that statement? As if to encourage Timothy. Timothy, if I can do it, you can do it. I've kept the faith. Verse 8, as to what remains henceforth, there is laid up for me the victor's crown of righteousness for being right with God and doing right. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness because I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Whether this is a golden diadem or whether this is the, the olive branch or the, the, uh, the crown of, of uh, branches they would give in the Olympics is not clear to me here. But both of them show you the victor. If it's saying it's the victor's crown, then that has to do more with Olympics than it does a kingly crown. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and recompense me on that great day. That seems to really insinuate it's more of a victor's crown for the Olympic events. Because it's not a crown of royal leadership or royal authority. It's the crown that says, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Therefore, I win the battle and I get the victor's crown. And he says, and not only me, not to me only, but also to those who have loved and yearned for and welcomed his appearing. So there's a crown for you and I, just like Paul's crown, if we love and yearn for and welcome his appearing. So what happens if we don't? King James says, and not to me only, but also uh, unto all them that love is appearing. What if you don't love his appearing? Well, one of the ways we can tell whether we love is appearing or not is how we live. If you are living dirty, you're not looking forward to his appearing. If you live carnal, 
You're not looking forward to his appearing. If you're sinning against your God habitually every day and you have no conscience about it, you don't look forward to his appearing. Therefore, you have compromised your place on the podium and you won't get the victor's crown. In fact, I kind of read an insinuation here. You may get disqualified. Well, how could we come to that conclusion? Well, let's read the next verse. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas has deserted me. Whoa, whoa, I kept the faith. There's a crown of victory for me and for you. And please come to me because Demas has deserted me. It sounds like a linear train of thought here. Fighting the good fight, lay hold of eternal life, henceforth the crown of life, or victor's crown. Please come to me. I think really Paul wanted to make sure he was in the faith, staying in the faith, because then his next thought is verse 10. Demas has deserted me. Now, Demas is quoted heavily in Colossians and Philemon. In fact, if, if you read, let's see here, in the end of Colossians, it talks about Demas greeteth thee. Uh, I believe Colossians starts with Demas greeteth thee. You see that Demas was one of Paul's traveling companions, and he has part and parcel in the epistle. We don't have too many folks. Uh, Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And then uh, Philemon or Philemon quotes uh, Demas and calls him one of Paul's fellow laborers. Marcus, uh, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. So at one point, Demas was one of Paul's fellow laborers, but now he has deserted him because he's loved the present world. Well, when you love the present world, you don't love the appearing of the Lord. I want you to pay attention there and see the contrast with uh, loving his return versus loving the world. Loving the return of Christ. King James says, those that love is appearing. And actually, I'm going to see what Greek word that is. It may be agapeo. Loving his return versus loving the world. Let's see here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Agapeo is not simply the love of God. It's sacrificial love. It is the love of God because God sacrificed for us all that love. All those that love is return, agapeo. And yet the next verse or two verses later, it says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. It's agapeo. That's what we've always called the God kind of love, like it was reserved for him especially, but it's not. You can agapeo the Lord's return, or you can be like Demas and agapeo the world. That is, you make a sacrifice to hasten the coming of the Lord, or you can make a sacrifice to obtain the world. And whatever you sacrifice for, that's what you're demonstrating your agapeo toward. You sacrifice for your kids because you have an agapeo love, agape. You sacrifice for sports because you have an agapeo. You sacrifice without any expectation of a return. It's worth it to make the sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> Let's just take some dumb examples here so we can wrap our mind around it. One of my uh, favorite musicians is Dave Brubeck. He was a jazz pianist. He died five, eight years ago. I was actually in the Detroit airport looking at the uh, ticker when it said uh, jazz pianist Dave Brubeck died. I think he was 85. I love his music. 
Time Out, one of the greatest jazz albums ever, or Take Five, that song is Time Out. I had the opportunity 17 years ago to drive. I was in East Tennessee drilling. I had the opportunity to drive over to Asheville, North Carolina, and sit in a very small concert with him. And it would have only cost me a couple hundred bucks. And I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that is one, that I did not take the opportunity. My fear was I was going to get in at 3 a.m. I had to be on the job site by 7. I could have done it. I was in my early 30s. I regret not making the sacrifice to drive from Jefferson City or Johnson City, Johnson City, over to Asheville to watch um, Dave Brubeck give a private performance at this very fancy uh, hotel there whose name escapes me. And I should have done it. Now, oddly enough, my mom was in Chicago about the same time, and she was there on business, and uh, the pharmaceutical company she was working for paid for everybody to do a couple outings, and one of them was a concert. So she calls me up, and she says, you ever heard of this pianist named Dave Blaylock, Dave Bluelock? I said, Dave Brubeck? She said, yeah. I said, yeah. She said, I just got back from a concert with him. I said, what? She said, yeah, my company paid for me. I, I just, my mom plays the piano, has her whole life. She said, I just saw Dave Brubeck in concert. I was so jealous. She didn't even know who he was. And here I've had all of his albums. I actually have the vinyl. I actually have the vi album from 58 that's unopened. And she got to see him and I didn't make the sacrifice. Now, if you were to say, hey, pastor, I've got you tickets to go see Taylor Swift at the Hoop Let's walk. I'd say, no, it ain't worth it to me. I'm not a Swifty. I don't like Taylor Swift. She's a dizzy idiot, in my opinion. And there's something wrong with the whole world thinks she's awesome. So no, I will not make a sacrifice for Taylor Swift, even if you paved the way for me, because I have zero agapeo for her when it comes to sacrifice. Dave Rubeck, I would go agapeo for him. Lame examples. Hopefully you see the point. Brother Chad, he agapeos for golf and... Short track racing or whatever it is, dirt track, I don't know. He agapeos for that. He'll drive all over the South for golf <laughs> and for driving in circles. That's not my thing. I'll agapeo for a cave. I'll agapeo for a mountaintop. I'll agapeo to go see a friend. Everybody has a different thing, but we ought to make sure we make sacrificial love toward the coming of the Lord and not the world. So I, maybe if you want to underline both words love or mark it in your Bible, Paul says, loving the return of the Lord. And in contrast, you could be like Demas who loved this present world. When you love the coming of the Lord, you draw closer to the Lord. When you love the present world, you retreat from the person you're called to. It appears from the text that Demas was someone who, like Timothy, was called to Paul. But he did not maximize that calling, that divine connection. And so what we have here is a horrible story of the great falling away. So let's read in verse 10 again. For Demas has deserted me for love of this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Now we don't know why. Titus to Dalmatia, that's where the dogs come from, no joke, Dalmatians. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Now that's John Mark. We covered him last week. 
uh, John Mark and bring him with you for he is very helpful to me for the ministry. That is more than likely who wrote the gospel of Mark. That's John Mark of the book of Acts. That's John Mark who started with Paul and Barnabas, his uncle on the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. But after three islands, he quits the missionary field because he's a mama's boy and probably has soft, dainty hands and doesn't want to be a servant. He wants to be served. So he returns to his hometown so he can grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth in his mother's big fancy house. 25 years later, after Paul is done, he says, bring John Mark to me. He's useful again. What did John Mark miss out on? What did John Mark miss out on? He could have been with Paul every step of the way, but now, thank God for the restoration. But after 20, 25 years, now he gets to be with Paul. What, what could have been imparted into him every step of the way if he'd have stayed faithful to who he was assigned to? Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very helpful to me for the ministry. And you see, he's helpful to me. I'm going to use him. Part of ministry is being used. Tychicus, or the Greek says tukekos, but we, I call it Tychicus. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus, which means at some point Timothy is not there. Because if Timothy was at Ephesus, Paul probably would have said, I'm sending Tychicus to you. So you see Paul kind of air traffic controlling, pulling Titus here, sending uh, Tychicus, excuse me, pulling Timothy here, sending Tychicus there. Or maybe Tychicus comes with this epistle and in exchange he says, hey, Paul wants you to go find him. He's in Rome or Macedonia, wherever he's at at the time. Verse 13, when you come, so it's assumed. When you come, you got to come to me. Make every effort to come to me. When you do come, bring the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. Guess he has a favorite jacket. I get it. You got your favorite jacket. You only got one. You're in a cell. You're in prison. It's cold. Bring me something. Also the books, because if you don't read, you can't lead. I hate rhyming schemes, but it works pretty good there. You have to be an avid reader. If you're going to lead at all, Listen to me, church. You're going to have to read. God has given you the gift of literacy. There are still civilizations in the earth. I wouldn't even call them a civilization. They're not literate. The native peoples of this country were not literate. They had no written language. They lived in the Stone Age. We've been blessed. The Hebrews have had a written language for thousands of years. And things are written down so we can learn, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And some of you have told me, I just can't stand reading. Get over yourself. Ask God for the love to read. The book of Proverbs commands you to love knowledge and love instruction and get it. Get the books. Read. Read something. Increase your vocabulary beyond yurt and grunts and points. <laughs> Especially the parchments. You kinda, this is starting to feel like a last will and testament because he's wrapping things up, calling people out, saying things. These are like his final thoughts. We know this is Paul's final epistle. Alexander the coppersmith, not Alexander the guest of the associate minister from 1 Timothy, different Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me great wrongs. The Lord will pay him back for his actions. Don't, don't mess with preachers, not holy, clean ones. Don't do them wrong. Paul is saying by the Spirit of God, God will get him back. Why would you mess with Paul? Beware of him. So, well, that sounds like gossip. No, it's biblical. Mark him. Have nothing to do with them. Timothy is being told, beware of him yourself. Don't trust Alexander. For he opposed and resisted our message very strongly and exceedingly. Please understand, church, ministers talk about sheep behind the sheep's back. 
And when sheep leave here and go to another church, I call up that shepherd and I give them the scoop. One guy left our church. I warned the pastor, listen, this guy is horny. He's looking to have sex. And just, I want you to know. And you know what? He ended up going to that church and had sex with one of their ladies. <laughs> I warned you. Be forewarned. Another guy left our church. He was an older gentleman. He liked, <clears throat> he liked college boys. I told him, hey, he's going, coming to your church. Keep an eye on him. He likes boys. Hopefully he did and nothing happened. Verse 16, at my first trial, no one acted in my defense as my advocate or took my part or even stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. That's his trial in Rome. But the Lord stood by me, strengthened me, set through me the gospel message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was delivered out of the jaws of the lion. Now, Finally, at the end of Paul's life, if you know my teaching, not everybody agrees with it, but I'm pretty convinced of it. When Paul starts off on his missionary journey, he goes to the Gentiles in the synagogue, excuse me, the Jews in the synagogues first, everywhere he goes. Though the calling of Jesus Christ upon his life is to the Jews, excuse me, the call of Jesus Christ on Paul was to the Gentiles and to the kings and then to the Jews. But everywhere Paul went for the entirety of the book of Acts, he goes to the Jews first. And the only people ever interested in killing Paul are the Jews because he's making a mess of things in the synagogue. The book of Acts ends with Paul's two years of silence where Paul's in prison for disobeying the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem to preach to the Jews. Now, 25 or so years later, Paul is writing. He makes no mention of the Jews and he says, through me, the gospel message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. There's no reference of his delusion that he might have a side hustle or a side ministry to the to the Jews. It's strictly Gentiles now. Because even with your calling, if you're called to the ministry, there's a maturation and a development where you begin to understand what your lane is and what your lane is not. And it's wonderful to see Paul's growth from the book of Acts to the final stages of his ministry. He finally figured it out. If Jesus said, I'm called to the Gentiles and to kings and then the Jews, then why reverse that and go to the Jews and the Jews and the Jews? Oh, here's a Gentile. And the Jews, when he had his most fruit among the Gentiles and his most hostility among the Jews. Just a neat observation there. So I was delivered out of the jaws of the lion. And indeed, the Lord will certainly deliver and draw me to himself from every assault of evil. Once again, you see how many references there are in these epistles, the Timothy and Timothy epistle, to persecution, affliction, persecution, jaws of the lion, opposition. They've done me wrong. They've betrayed me. They've abandoned me. Please come to me. Timothy, I want to make sure you finish your race like I do. He will preserve and bring me safe into his glorious kingdom, heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And now he says his final farewells. He says, give my greetings to Presca, that is Priscilla, and Aquila, and to the household of Onesiphorus. Remember, Onesiphorus was quoted earlier. He was quoted in chapter 1, where it says, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He's mentioned again here at the end of Paul's last epistle, because he did a great thing for Paul. We ought to be like that. And then, of course, Priscilla and Aquila, these are two of his disciples that had a house church. They were a husband and wife missionary team. 
Much has tried to have been made out of quoting Presca first. I've even heard some ministers, and mostly liberal theologians, say that because Presca or Priscilla is mentioned first here, that that insinuates she's the pastor and therefore she doesn't have to submit to her husband. But I'm not really sure how you get that just because you mention the wife first. How do you get that she's in charge? You mean God's going to give her special privileges when the Bible says wives submit to your husbands? Or how about he has a closer relationship with her? How about she's more of a daughter to him? I mean, there's a thousand reasons why he could quote Presca first. But to try to read into it that she is the pastor of this house church, that's what's called eisegesis. You're reading something into it rather than exegesis, which is reading something out of it. That just comes back to that bra burning incense. <laughs> We're supposed to burn sweet smelling incense to God, not the bra burning hippie feminist incense of the 60s. <laughs> God help us. Verse 20, Erastus stayed on at Corinth, but Trophimus I left ill at Miletus. So here are other ministers in Paul's traveling compartment or companionship. Erastus stayed on at Corinth. Maybe Paul left and Erastus said, I got to stay here and help the church. And Trophimus, he said, I left ill at Miletus. He was sick. We just, we just had to leave him. Can't, we can't stay with you. <laughs> a, couple, a couple years ago when Gertie and I were in Uganda, he was having uh, airplane ticket problems. I'd already nearly left him in Atlanta when he had passport problems. I just think Gertie has problems. So we were flying to Uganda and Gertie's passport had less than six months left on it. So I'm getting on the airplane or really about to get on the jetway. And I hear the passport lady say, I'm sorry, you can't get on this airplane. And I, I realize she's talking to Gertie, my traveling companion. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, what? She said, he said, I said, he's with me. She said, well, he has less than six months on his passport. And Uganda requires more than six months on a passport to get entry. I said, so what does that mean? She says, that means you're, he's not getting on this airplane. We can't let him board. And I said, well, what do we do? She said, well, there is an emergency passport center here in Atlanta. And she said, if you do something, if you go there, this flight leaves tomorrow, same time, same flight every 24 hours. So, blessed be the Lord God who had mercy upon Gert. We're in Atlanta, and I have a lot of family in Atlanta, including my aunt, who was a Delta stewardess for like 40 years. So I said, all right, right, let's." we rebook the tickets right there as I recall, and I called Aunt Deborah, and I said, hey, Aunt Deborah, we're in uh, Atlanta. Can we come spend the night with you and go to the emergency passport center in the morning? Because my companion, he needs a new passport. So sure, no problem. We pulled our luggage. She picks us up. We go out to eat at the very first Chick-fil-A called the Dwarf House. Don't know why it's called the Dwarf House, but it is. And then in the morning, first thing, we're in downtown Atlanta. We go to the emergency passport center. We get a new passport, we have breakfast, we pick up the passport, we get back to the airport, and we're on the flight 24 hours later. So now we've lost a day. So then coming home, have a great trip, checking on the scudders, coming home, we're in Antibi, going through, about to get our luggage checked, and Gertie's beside me again, so I'm cleared, and then I heard the lady say to Gertie, I'm sorry, you're not on this flight. And I just look at Gertie like, I think your name is Trophimus because I'm about to leave you in Antibi. And he said, what? And I said, ma'am, what? She said, he's not on this flight. I said, yes, ma'am, he is. And I, I don't know what you need to do, but he's on this flight, so you, you need to work it out. 
And I said he was on this flight coming in. And I do remember we had to make some switches in Dallas. There were thunderstorms through Atlanta, so we didn't fly through Atlanta to go to Uganda. We ended up flying through Dallas and then Dallas, etc. So some legs got switched and it wasn't carried through. So I said, ma'am, and Gertie looks at me and says, what do I do? I said, you better pray, Gertie, because I got a wife and kids at home and I am not staying here for you. I'm on this flight. You can call Scudder and have him pick you up, but I'm leaving. So I went over and sat down and Gertie did his thing and he comes and sits beside me and I at least had the the love to sit and wait for him before we went through customs, passport control. And he, he I remember Gertie, Gertie, you probably remember this. He said, what do I do? I said, I'd pray in tongues, man, because I'm, I'm getting on this airplane. It's been like two weeks. I'm going home. I miss my wife. I miss Lydia. Lydia was like a year old. I'm going home. Gert, you can stay here. I'm going home. What do I do? Pray in tongues, man. Beat this thing. Command that ticket to come through. And after 15 or 20 minutes, which is a little nerve wracking, uh, the lady comes up. She says, I'm sorry, sir. We have sorted it out. You are free. I swear to you, I would have left him because I have biblical reason to. Like here, Trophimus, I left ill at Miletus. Gertie, I would have left stranded at Antibi. It fits the scripture. It's biblical. I feel right. I feel like that's an, ap- uh, an accurate application of verse 20. <laughs> Just joking. But I would have left him because I was going home that day. Verse 21, do hasten and try your best to come to me before winter, probably because he wants that cloak, and it's going to get cold in Rome, where Paul's in prison. But do you hear it? Verse 9, make every effort to come to me. Verse 13, when you come, and now verse 21, do hasten and try your best to come to me. Eubulus wishes to be remembered to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace, God's favor and blessing be with you. Amen. So be it. You, you hear in this great man of God, the Apostle Paul, this final charge, because as far as we know, this is the last letter. You see his confidence, his boldness in the face of adversity. And yet, even in Paul, you see that need for comfort, that need for a colleague, that need for fellowship, that need for companionship. You hear in his heart that need to see his spiritual son face to face, almost to hold him and, and hold his face and make sure you're still in the faith, son. How discouraging for Paul to see 25 or 30 years of his ministry begin to crumble around him as he's about to go home. And he suffered the loss of Hymenius and Philetus and Alexander and Asia Minor and now Demas and, and this guy's sick and this guy's here and that guy's there. Um, and of all his writings, you hear his heart is the most dear towards this young Timotheus. So you know he's at the end of his life, and he just wants to see his son one last time. Maybe to love him, maybe to embrace him, to pray with him, just to hold him. Because his son, we have no record that Paul was ever married. We have no record that Paul ever had a natural son. We have no record that Timothy had a dad in his life. So we know there's this special bond between them. You hear the stalwart faith of this mighty apostle who was fearless everywhere he went, and yet he still has a humanity that says, I want to see my son before I finish this course. Please come to me. Do your best to come to me before winter. And that concludes 2 Timothy. I I trust, though, that you're seeing some of these overall arcing narratives 
You're seeing the things the Lord Jesus is driving home through the Apostle Paul to the young Timothy. And I hope you're seeing what the pastor's job assignment is. We know our assignment. I do get tickled. It doesn't happen anymore. I think it was a test from the enemy or maybe a test from God. I don't really care. Sometimes it's a test. You just want to take it and pass it. When I first took over the church and was first pastoring, it seemed like every airplane I got on, everywhere I went and met a stranger, and they would find out inevitably, what do you do for a living? And I was like, here we go. And I'd say, I'm a pastor of church. I mean, nine, well, maybe not nine times out of ten. Six times out of ten, when somebody found out I pastored a church, they'd say, oh, you pastor a church? Let me tell you what you ought to do. And I didn't ask, and they sure weren't qualified to tell me what to do, but they would anyway. I remember one doofus, he was an airline steward, a cabin steward, and not that that's a bad career, but I'm studying the Bible. I'm headed to a conference or a mission trip, and you want to stop and tell me how to do ministry. And I want to say, just give me my Coke and peanuts. Oh, you're an airline steward. Let me tell you what you do. Just shut up and give me my Coke and peanuts because he wants to tell me how to steer the church. And then another time, another lady. Well, let me tell you how to do this. (laughs) If you feel, and I don't think you do because you're a well-taught church, but anytime a sheep feels like they have a right to tell the shepherd what to do, just remember he's going to remember that and remind you. Remember when you told me how to pastor my church? Let me tell you how to be a better husband. Let me tell you how to be a better wife. Let me tell you how to help your kids and not send them to hell. Remember when you said you thought you knew how to be a better shepherd, though you've never done it a day in your life? Well, I've been a pastor. I've been a husband. I've been a father. I know how to do all those. So let me help you because you're ruining your life. Hopefully with this teaching, you're seeing behind the scenes of what ministry looks like and what shepherds have to do and contend with. And there is a strength to them. There's an opposition against them. And there's a humanity that is is boiling up within them as well. And so if nothing else, just pray for me. Pray for ministers. If you're visiting with us and you have a home church, make sure you pray for your pastor every day because it is lots of times it's a thankless job that we do for the Lord Jesus. And you'll never know all the sacrifices your your pastors get to make for you. So pray for us because we love you and we do a lot more for you than you'll ever know. The worst thing you could ever do is get offended at us because that would be a fool's behavioral pattern. We live for you and that ought to be readily evident. Amen.